0: How are we doing, church? Good? All right, you ready for this? I don't think you are. All right, get your Bible. Let's go Song of Solomon, chapter three. Song of Solomon, chapter three. This is your last chance to get your kids out of here. Uh, We're gonna talk about sexual immorality and um, I would advise that I not be the person to introduce your kids to the topic of sexual immorality, okay? That would be very poor parenting on your part. And so I would suggest you send them to NewGen now. If they're still in here, you can go through those doors if you're in the worship center or straight out of the back in the sanctuary, and we are going to dig in. Um, one of my dreams when I used to dream about... I'm going to need those. Uh, one of my dreams when I used to dream about, uh, you know, starting a church, I used to think, oh, you know what, if I'm ever in charge of a church then I think it would be great if we just actually talked about things that are pertinent to our lives in the way that we just talk normally. And so the Lord said, all right, Scooter, here's your chance. And so now uh, this is our church. and. And so um, I always thought it was interesting that one of, the, one of the most prevailing problems or situations or issues in our culture was sex. We live in a sex-saturated society, and yet most of the time when I didn't really grow up in church, but when I was there, they didn't really handle it the way anybody else handled it. They didn't. They didn't speak a language that I understood. They, didn't, they talked about God instead of just God, you know, just that kind of stuff. And then when it came to sex and sexuality, I grew up in kind of the True Love Waits era, which is a great ministry. It's awesome. I'm not critical of that at all. But essentially, the way it was presented to me is this, is that, is that um, you know, whatever your question is about can I to the Bible, the answer is no. I remember thinking, why do we have like a whole Bible? We just need three by five cards with no on it and whatever your question is. Here's the answer. Now, what was your question? That was kind of the deal. And the way sex was presented is that it was, it, it was dirty, and it was gross, and it was vile, and you're probably going to get herpes anyway, so save it for the one you love. So true love waits. And that didn't really help any of us. And then, and then my parents weren't really that helpful either. I have great parents. Mom and Dad love me very much. They didn't, not so much to each other. That wasn't that great. But to me, they were great parents. And so... Um, you remember when you had, like, the talk with your parents? Remember how terrible that was? Remember if your parents ever did the talk and it was it was way too late, you know? Your dad would be like, well, Timmy, now that you're heading off to college, maybe we should talk about um, <laughs> boys and girls and birds and bees. And he thought, oh, right, Dad. And so my talk with my dad went something like this, and it's really, really terrible, but... <clears throat> Let me just say this. My intention is not to be crude, but I am crude. I know the Bible says don't be crude, but it says a lot of things that I'm not supposed to do right now, and God is still sanctifying me, okay? But here's what my dad said. My daddy says, just out of nowhere one day, I'm sitting in the living room, and he says, hey, boy, you know what the difference between a pregnant girl and a light bulb is, don't you? I said, no, sir. And he said, you can unscrew a light bulb. (laughs) That's it? Good talk, Dad. That's the talk. That just happened. That was it. Good luck. So... <clears throat> so, then what a lot of times we do is we just kind of trust the school system, maybe let them handle it. And so, sort of our modern and postmodern idea is if you can just educate people, you can educate them to morality. And so, uh, you know, the, the experts say that if you just, if we could just teach young people about it and give them all the information, then they will make the wise choices. Well, how's that working out? Well, the problem is, is the only thing that school has chosen to do is just deal with the plumbing. So, you know, they're talking about the ovaries and the Philippians tubes and all those kinds of things, and they aren't actually dealing with the real source of why God created sex and what it's for. And until we change our perspective, we'll never change our practice. And so we are going to just walk through what the scripture says about sexual immorality, and this is not going to be a popular message. Here's who's going to love this message, a faithful dad and husband of a teenage daughter. You're going to love this. Everybody else. You will be offended. here we go. <clears throat> so um, we 're just going to dig on dig in, and, and again, my goal is to try to rightly handle the Word of God. I, I would just say this too that um, I'm really talking to the Christians today. I understand that there's lots of you here that wouldn't that say, hey, "I'm not a Christian yet. I, I don't. I don't know if I buy into the whole Jesus thing. I just kind of like coming to church. I'm investigating it. Whatever. Look, you're always welcome here. This is a movement for all people. But if Jesus isn't your Lord, then you're your Lord. So you do whatever you want to do. You may can extract some principles from here, but for those of us that have surrendered our life to the lordship of Christ, that what we're saying is he's our boss, we're not our boss anymore. And so um, by, by surrendering your life to the lordship of Christ, you're saying I'm pre-deciding to do what he says because he's my king and I'm not the king of my life anymore. And so even though it won't be very popular, okay, we're just going to walk through um, what what Creator God, through His Word, says about sex and sexuality and sexual immorality. So in Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we're going to pick it up there, and then we're going to hop over to the New Testament and really unpack the purpose of sex. So Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, on my bed by night. Now, she is dreaming. This is the the girl talking, and she is about to lay down and go to sleep, and she's going to have a dream. And let me just tell you this, married men. If you will do what we preached, what I preached about last week, if you will date your wife, if you will pursue her and value her and create the kind of environment where you can say to her, come out dove from the cleft of the rock. It's, it's safe for you to be who God created you to be. If you'll just come on out here and you create that kind of environment you pursue and you value and do, you do the things that we talked about in chapter two, then when your wife lays down to go to sleep, she will dream of you. It's the natural Response to the pursued and valued woman. And so this is what she does. So she lays down, she's going to sleep on my bed by night. I sought, this is her dream. I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchman found me as they went about the city, and she's going to ask them a question Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So essentially, she has this dream about going out in the streets, finding her man, and bringing her, him into his mom, her mom's bedroom. Now, that's super creepy, all right? That's kind of weird. Any of you married people that go and visit your in-laws and you got like, stay in your wife's room? That she grew up in, you know how creepy it is, like to be there with her parents in the house, it's creepy, that's what's happening here, but it is what it is, okay, now, so essentially, if you get the first three weeks of what we've been teaching and preaching here, then this is the natural result, when two people are attracted to one another, you got a godly man and a godly woman, and there is pursuit, and, and, and there is response, then it leads towards physical intimacy, And so, what you'll see is nowhere in the text does God swoop in and go, how dare you? That is gross. No. In fact, when God made Adam and Eve, sex was his idea. Do you understand? If you've ever wondered, is God really good? He invented sex. Can I get an amen? Amen. That he, before, like, listen, creationists, at one point there was no sex. And then God said, I have an idea. And the angel said, what is it, boss? Is it another rainbow? No, it's better than a rainbow, okay? Right. And it's for procreation and recreation that God gave you parts, male and female, that have nothing to do with making more people, but just so you could enjoy it. I mean, he could have decided to create people in any way he wanted to. He could have, you know, just, you wake up one day, your toes swell up, they fall off, and you'd be like, hey, look, we got kids, and you have them all at one time. He could have done it that way, but instead... God invented sex. So never in the text is he going to step in and say, no, you're bad for having these feelings. But the question is, when is the time? When is this appropriate? When is it okay for her to go out and grab her man and bring him into the chambers all night long? And that's why you get verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field that you... Not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So the question is not where's the line, but when's the time. And the time for sex is marriage. I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about this. That sex is for married people. And not just intercourse, okay? Any, anything that is about physical intimacy towards one another is for the, the, the covenant ordained relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. And so that is, that's what God intended it for. That is what the word teaches. And here's, here's why. Because our world teaches that sex is only physical. But the problem with that is that God made sex and intimacy, exclusivity and commitment to all be interwoven. And so when you try to disassociate sex and intimacy and you try to divorce those two things, then it causes all kinds of problems, personally, relationally, in your marriage and all throughout our society. And what you want more than just sex is you want intimacy. And again, when you try to treat sex like it's just a physical act, then it's like a doe in a field. A doe is only going to stay in that field when, those in, when that environment is just right. And you can chase that doe out of that field in a second, just like you can chase the intimacy out of your life in a second, especially when you begin to divorce um, sex and intimacy. And so, he says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you should not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So sex is for married people. Not going to be married, not used to be married, not but we're engaged, or we're married in the eyes of God. No, you're not. Sex is for married people. Now, I know some of you, many of you, will say, well, isn't that archaic? I mean, isn't that just kind of an old school way of thinking? What's the big deal? Aren't we just, I mean, we're two consenting adults. Just joining into an activity that's mutually pleasurable. Nobody's getting hurt. I mean, and in fact, not just that, um, you know, isn't it a good idea to live together so that you can kind of test out the waters, you know, to make sure we're sexually compatible? I've got really awful news for you. Do you know that you are sexually compatible with thousands and thousands and thousands of people? You really don't want to try that out. And in fact, statistically speaking, if you live together and sleep together before you get married, you're 50% more likely to get divorced. You're actually setting yourself up for failure. If you're a man and you've lived with more than three women, it's statistically impossible for you to stay married. That is not God's plan for you. He has a, he has a better idea for you. And what you're doing inadvertently, I know that's not your intention, but you are ruining the intimacy that you long for one day in your marriage. And, and you hear people say this really dumb stuff. And, and if you think about it for more than a minute, it really is dumb where people say, but you wouldn't buy a car without taking it on a test drive or you wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without, without trying them on first. Here's the difference, bro. Your future bride is not a used car and she's not a pair of shoes. And if that's how you treat her, you, you do not have what it takes to be a husband. Because we're going to learn next week that to be a husband is a high and holy calling. And that you are to love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've even heard people say, well, look, we have sex before we get married because we want to practice. You really don't. Let me assure you. If on the night of your honeymoon, after you have sex, you look at your wife and go, wow, baby, that was amazing. She goes, I've been practicing for years. I have lots of different training partners. I had like boot camp in Daytona for several weeks a year. I mean, I've gotten really, really good at this. It will not help your sex life at all. The opposite is true too. If on your honeymoon, if you saved yourselves for one another and you, on your honeymoon night, it wasn't all it was cracked up to be, I promise you, you won't go, hey, you need to go out and practice so we can be better at this. Absolutely not. That that will actually destroy your sex life. It will not enhance it. And so, the time, the time is when you get married. Because here's the thing. Sex and intimacy cannot be divorced. And if you try to divorce those two things, your heart will grow so hard that you will have a hard time having intimacy one day. Because that dough of the field will leave and you'll have a hard time getting it back. And if you're having sex outside of marriage, if you're having sex before marriage, it, regardless of why you think you are, it boils down to this. It boils down to impatience. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Bible defines love this way, that love is patient. And you cannot simultaneously be impatient with someone and love someone. And so sex is for married people. And the ordained, anointed, covenant, marriage, between one man and one woman. Now, here's what I know. I know that we need a new perspective. Um, I know that until we change our perspective, we will never change our practice. And so the problem is, if you just address sex outside of marriage as, no, don't quit, stop, it's dirty, nasty, stop, then no matter how hard you try, apart from the gospel, you're not going to be able to pull that thing off, okay? It's hard to put it in reverse, and so what I hope to do is give us a godly perspective of what sex is so that then we can, in response to that, have godly practice of what sex is. You see, back in the Crusades when they would, um, when they would baptize soldiers, they would take a knight and they would baptize him. He would proclaim Jesus Christ as his Lord, and when they baptized him before he would go out on the Crusades, he would hold his sword in his hand and out of the water. And he would say, everything up to here, I have surrendered to Jesus, but this is my sword. And so in our culture, it's not so much a sword, but we have two hands out of the water. We hold our wallet in one, and we hold our sexuality in our other hand. And so some of you can, you know, kind of relax. We're not going to talk about money today. But if he's not Lord of all, I'm telling you, he may not be Lord at all. And so what we're going to talk about is a lordship issue. And the answer for this is not, God is good, you're bad, try harder. And I'm not going to try to heap on the condemnation. I believe the Holy Spirit's going to convict a lot of us in this room. But anybody that's ever um, tried to, you know, if you've ever won like yard of the month or whatever, you know that you've got to do two things in your yard. Because we live in Florida, so if there's weeds in your yard and you just mow over them, it looks great for 30 seconds. And then by the time you get the the lawnmower back into the garage, bing, there's another one. And so you also know that the best way to attack the weeds in your yard is to feed the grass. And the more you feed the grass, the more it chokes out the weeds. And you've got to do both things. You've got to root those weeds up from their very roots. And you've got to feed that grass, feed that grass, feed that grass. And so if you, if you can hop over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, is the apostle Paul Through the Holy Spirit, he gives us a picture of what sex was intended for and what it's all about. And I believe that if we can get God's perspective, then it could change our practice and those things can line up. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians and to the church in Corinth. These are Christians. These are people that have surrendered their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And there's all kind of ridiculous things going on in the church of Corinth. Sometimes I have my pastor friends will say, "Man, I'm just trying to get back to the first test. I mean, the New Testament church." And I think, dude, you need to read your Bible. That was a terrible church. Like in the book in, in Corinthians, you know what one of their problems were? Um, they had guys sleeping with their stepmoms. That's weird. They also had people getting drunk on communion. They didn't use like the high seed grape juice like we do, you know, for the respect of our Southern Baptist friends, but they use like the leaded stuff, real wine, and people would show up to church to celebrate communion. They get hammered drunk on communion. I mean, that's sick, right? Nobody in here has ever gotten drunk off the little shot glasses that we use, all right? But there, this is the kind of craziness that was happening. And so what Paul's gonna do is Paul's gonna take the gospel and he's gonna preach the gospel and then some specific applications of the gospel in some of the things that they are struggling with. So I'm starting in verse nine because if you don't get the gospel, then all you're gonna do is try to not do bad stuff. And you can't pull that off. But what we're gonna see here is that the gospel is the answer. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. He says, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, all right? And that is really bad news for all of us in the room. You know why? Because we're all unrighteous. The Bible says no one is righteous. No, not one. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody in here is unrighteous. The way I typically explain it to us is that you and I, that we are wretched, black-hearted sinners, And it's kind of a term of endearment. I mean that with all the love that I can muster up. That you, like your problem is actually you. Your problem is not that your dad didn't hug you enough and you weren't breastfed and whatever. The problem is you. Yeah, at the heart of the problem is a problem with your heart. Nobody's lied to you more. Nobody's broken more promises to you. Like you and I are in our very nature wretched, depraved, that we like being our own gods. Every parent of a toddler has experienced this, they are great at sinning. You did not have to train them. They will look at your face, they will lie, they will throw a fit when they don't want, they get what they want, they are very selfish, they'll try to kill their sister, they'll do whatever they want to do and nobody had to teach them that. That we are all unrighteous and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The, The kingdom of God cannot be inherited like just because your grandma was a pre a, a, a Christian does not mean that you are that you inherit her eternal life. That is not how it works. That we all stand condemned before an Almighty God, and and we chose that. We were willing rebels and enemies against the Almighty God. We have all slapped the face of the Lion of Judah and stand condemned. And then what he's going to do? Just really driving in there for us. He says, do not be deceived, because a lot of us are deceived. And then he's going to give us a list. And the list is not an exhaustive list. So if your sin of choice is not on the list, it's not like, "Whoo, I'm righteous on my own standing. No. That this list is an overarching list that should encompass and include all people. And the point of the sin list that he's about to give is this. Is that these sins don't make you unrighteous. You are unrighteous, therefore you participate in these sins. Because I've had people say, hey, look, I'm not a liar. I just lie sometimes. Oh, my goodness. Are you dumb? <laughs> so he says, don't be deceived. Here's a list of the unrighteous. Neither the sexually immoral, that's, that's what we're talking about today. The Greek word there is porneo. So in the Bible, porneo, which gets translated sexual immorality, is any sex outside of marriage. That means um, hooking up, shagging up, pornography, uh, homosexuality, fornication, adultery, what you name it, all right? It's kind of the junk drawer. And a part of the reason that Paul uses this junk drawer is because one of you perverts will be like, ooh, I do this, that's not on the list. It's included in the list, okay? Anything that is sex outside of marriage. Husbands, listen to me. Wives, listen to me. Your spouse is the only legitimate source of romance for you, period. That means... Uh, no pornography, no flirting at work, no, you know, definitely no cheating. Girls, that also means no, I mean, romance novels, you know, those stupid vampire movies that you got obsessed with for a while. Anything that is a source of romance that is outside the one that you have made that covenant to would fall into that porneo. And so he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, that's every single one of us, nor adulterers. And then Jesus really jacks this one up. Because some of you think, well, I've never cheated on my spouse, so I'm good there. And Jesus says, if you've ever lusted after another woman in your heart, then you have already committed adultery. Nor men who practice homosexuality. We're going to come back to that one. I'm not going to dodge it. Verse 10. Nor thieves. That means if you've downloaded anything that you didn't, didn't pay for, then you're a thief. If you've ever invited people over to your house and didn't get express written consent of the NFL, then you're a thief. All right? Nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers. All you swindlers, watch out. I don't even know what that means, but you're in trouble too. Now, again, the point isn't that those things are bad and make you bad. No, that's not the point. The point is we are unrighteous, therefore, this is what it looks like. We do these things. Now, that means the sexually immoral, those who who are idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality. Now, what we're going to find out in a little while is that sexual immorality is in a category unto itself. But every type of sexual immorality is in that same kind of category. And I've had people warn me, hey, you probably shouldn't do this, this is kind of megachurch suicide. But I got to take just a minute and talk about those that practice homosexuality. Okay, it's kind of the hot topic of the day. So part of what I want to do is just clearly state, if you're going to be a part of this movement, the Church of 1122, here's where we are on that. And, and by God's grace, God has been drawing here really several uh, gay couples, several couples that are in a same-sex relationship. And see, I want to talk to you, and I want everybody else to hear. First and foremost, we are a movement for all people. We are a movement for all people, all colors, all races, all orientations, all people, to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's true. So you, if you would say, am I welcome here? As long as I'm welcome here, you're welcome here. But now, let me also say, it's a sin to be repented of. So what I want to do to all people is to clearly and compellingly proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that every single person here would surrender their life to the lordship of Christ, repent of their sin, and live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so is it a sin? The Bible thinks it is. Yes, it is. It's a sin to be repented of. And here's the thing. And I love the way the ESV translates it because it uses the word practice. We're not talking about desire here. That every single one of us have to surrender our desires to the Lordship of Christ. That when I became a Christian, when I got married to Gretchen, God did not take my desires and give me only desires just for her. If I put myself in the right kind of situation, I could have lots of sinful desires that for all kind of girls. And so daily, I have to take up my cross and follow after him, die to myself, and, and choose to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, it comes down to this, it's a lordship issue. So Jesus is my Lord, not my hormones, not my orientation, but Jesus is my Lord. And if Jesus is your Lord, then you do what your king, your boss, your Lord says, regardless of how you feel or what your desires are. So both of these things are true. Are you welcome here? You are more welcome than you know. We are gonna roll out the red carpet, but you are just as welcome here as every other sinner that walks through the door. And in my eyes and in the Lord's eyes, you are no different than the guy looking at pornography, the guy sleeping with his girlfriend, all the other things that fall in that category of sexual immorality. So I hope and I pray that you feel loved, that you feel engaged, that you feel accepted, but then you've got to know this, that I'm gonna declare the gospel. And we love you too much to say, it's okay, just keep going down that that road because it's a lordship issue and then for full disclosure sake i feel like i need to tell you this it would be easy for you to find a church in jacksonville that says what you're doing is okay the guy made you that way and maybe he did that part's irrelevant God made me to do all kind of terrible stuff okay i get on jpb and i feel like god made me to kill people but i can't do that (laughs) to surrender that desire same thing but you're gonna hear the truth here And here's here's my warning. If you go to a church that says, you know what, sin's not really sin anymore, and that's okay. Then the problem is, every church I know that does that, they also, when they talk about how do you get to heaven, they get really fuzzy there. And pay attention to what eternal life is. Because what will begin to happen is they'll begin to bend there because they don't want to make enemies. And then if you begin to bend on the most important thing, that's the most dangerous thing. And so, are you welcome here? Yes and amen. I want every conservative, khaki-wearing person to hear that. And I want every every oriented person to hear that. Welcome and accepted, just like I've been welcome and accepted into the family of God. That God loves me just like I am. He loves you just like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. Surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Surrender it all to him. And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, may we all walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so, Paul says, do not be deceived because we live in a culture that is trying to deceive us. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if it just stopped there, you would be like, are you saying that there's no hope for us and we're all going to hell? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But there's good news. Verse 11, here's the good news. And such were some of you past tense if you've surrendered your life to the lordship of christ then then what paul is saying here is you're not that list anymore you're not unrighteous anymore and you don't have to do the things you used to do because you're not the person that you used to be the person that you used to be died upon that cross with christ that you have been crucified with christ it's not longer you who live but christ who lives in you and so if you were to say yeah but i'm unrighteous But when you surrender your life to the lordship of Christ, guess what? God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that we would be made his righteousness. And so in fact, I've got a correct my theology a little bit for you just for full disclosure that when I say you're a wretched black-hearted sinner actually if you are in Christ you are no longer a wretched black-hearted sinner if I'd crack your chest open that's not even your heart anymore he didn't make your heart better he killed your old heart and put his heart in there and when Christ sees you he sees his righteousness regardless of the sin now if you don't get that we're about to dig into sexual immorality and you're gonna start feeling guilty but if you're in Christ there's no condemnation because Christ's death and resurrection was sufficient to pay for your sin. And if your debt is paid, you don't owe anything anything anymore. And that's why he can, in the past tense, say, and such were some of you, but you were washed. That's past tense. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So unrighteous people don't go to heaven well, that, that's problematic, except Christ gives us his righteousness when we surrender our lives unto him. So regardless of what you've done, and I'm not even talking about a long time ago. I mean, some of you last night, if you know Jesus and he looks at you, he's, God the Father sees the righteousness of his son. That's the gospel. The answer to sexual immorality is the gospel. Now, don't miss it because we're, we're about to get specific here. And just remind yourself of the gospel. And so now what he's going to do is Paul is going to specifically address the problem of sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. In your notes, you'll see in the text, you'll see uh, quotation marks. And everywhere there's a quotation mark, Paul is quoting part of the ethic of the Corinthian church or the Corinthian people. And so in quotes, it says, "All all things are lawful for me. And then Paul interjects, but not all things are helpful. And then again, he quotes them. All things are lawful for me. And then Paul interjects, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, he said, hey, church at Corinth, listen up. They, they say, you ain't the boss of me. And Paul goes, I know I'm not the boss of you, but Jesus is the boss of you. And so just because something is not illegal does not mean it is helpful for you. And so when you surrendered your life to Christ, you turned over uh, your decisions to your Lord. That's what Lordship means, to Christ. And then verse 13, this is when it gets really good. He says, quote, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. So essentially, a modern day thought in Corinth was, hey, listen, um, sex is an appetite like every other appetite. It's just a physical appetite like every other physical appetite. And so if God didn't want me to meet that appetite, he wouldn't have given me that appetite. And so like I got a stomach. So if I get hungry, I feed it. And if I get tired, I take a nap. And if I get horny, I have sex. What's the big deal? It's just physical. And so the problem with this is, is that, is that um, the Corinthians, they had a, a false view of the human situation. They had this false dichotomy between your soul and your body. And so what they thought was this. They believed that, um, and, and again, he's talking to Christians, and, and they believed that what I do with my body doesn't matter. Because it's just my body. It's temporary. If they're going to you know, dig a hole and put me in it one day, I'm going to die and turn back into dirt. It doesn't matter. So I can give my soul to Jesus. I can ask Jesus into my heart. And I can do spiritual things with Jesus. And Jesus kind of handles my spiritual life. But what I do with my body doesn't really matter. It's just like my stomach gets hungry, and so I feed it. And so I have a sexual appetite, and so I feed it. That's kind of what they thought. But Paul says... But God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And so the way this played out sexually in the first century in Corinth was this, that there were these um, pagan temples all over Corinth, and the biggest one was a temple to uh, a fertility goddess named Aphrodite. And a part of worshiping this, this goddess was that this temple had temple prostitutes. And Christians that had said, I love Jesus and I'm gonna be a follower of Jesus, and they would go to church on Sunday and read their Bible and sing with their hands up and join a disciple group and go on mission trips and do all the things the church was asking them to do. They thought that was just all soul work, but then during the week, they would go to this pagan temple and sleep with the temple prostitutes. And Paul's going, dude, you can't do that. And the the Corinthian pushback is, yeah, but it's just my body. And so, they're like, you know, it's Tuesday night temple prostitute night, all right? Can you imagine the outreach of this pagan temple I mean, it was all dudes. Their men's ministry was packed, all right? They're just there. And these men are saying, well, what's the problem? Here's the problem. That mentality is the same mentality being taught to our culture today, that sex is only physical. It is a lie from the gates of hell. Sex is not just a physical activity. There is much more to it than just physical. Verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? To which, they would go, huh? No, we didn't know that. And so he's, Paul's going to keep going, Don't, didn't you know? Didn't somebody tell you that your body is a member of Christ? If you surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you surrender the whole thing, all your body parts, not just your heart, not just your soul, but your whole body, and you actually become a member with Christ. And they would think, no, 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 no. I thought I'd just ask Jesus into my heart, but what I do with my body is my own business. And so he goes on to say, shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Like, wait a minute, Paul, what do you mean? I don't have like a membership in Temple Prostitute. It's just an activity. It's just an activity. And what you're talking about is something totally different than just a a physical activity. I mean, it's just like an event. And then when that event's over, you know, like on, on Monday night, we go see my in-laws, and on Tuesday night, we, I go and sleep with the temple prostitutes, and then on Wednesday night, you know, me and my wife get together, because it's a perfect night, none's on TV, it's a great night, that's me and my wife. And then on Thursday night, I eat wings with the boys, and on Friday night, I play softball, and on Sunday, I go to church, singing with my hands up. That these are all just different activities, and Paul's going, that's not how it works. You see, your body is actually a member of Christ if you're a Christian. And so, he asked the question. He says, shall I then... Take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. In other words, do you really think that sex is just physical? And then he answers his own question, never exclamation point. You see, nobody actually believes what our culture is telling us that sex is only physical. Nobody actually believes it. I mean, the great, you know, 20th century philosopher of our day, he said these words in the 90s, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. Let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Now, people want to believe that when it's convenient for them. When they're 20 years old and they've got no other uh, commitments or covenants. But I can promise you this, if that dude ever grows up and has a daughter, he's not going to want her to believe it that way. You see, nobody, nobody really believes that sex is only physical. Even the most atheistic, secular, humanist person alive would never look at somebody that's been raped, sexually assaulted, or molested and say, get over it. It was just physical. I mean, if somebody broke your arm, you wouldn't be whining about it as a 35 year old, so quit whining about being raped when you were a child. No. You see, even the most secular among us actually believe that it's more than just physical. This is what the Bible's teaching. That those kind of things cause some of the deepest art. It's different. It's not just physical like breaking an arm or breaking a leg. It's different. It's at the soul level. And so what Paul is saying for anybody that's participating in sexual immorality, he's like, wait a minute. If you say that you're a Christian and you're united with Christ, how in the world could you unite yourself with a prostitute? Verse 16, he says, or do you not know? And they're like, we don't know. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And they're going, wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean joining or becoming one? We're not becoming one. We're just having sex. And Paul would say, here's the deal. Paul, Paul's essentially saying, look, you cannot divorce sex and intimacy. You can't divorce the two. That there's something more than just physical going on there. There's a mingling of the souls. That's what the Hebrew word "dode means. That sex, intimacy, exclusivity, and covenant are the ingredients that God created you for to be in close relationship with your spouse and in close relationship with him. And here's the thing. And when you take this incredible gift of sex and sexuality and you get it outside of the confines and the construct of what God intended it for, you can take this good and beautiful gift and it can be so very destructive. The best example I know, um, I've used it before, but... When I was a youth pastor at, at Beach, I used to lead these things called the man trip, all right? Because we had all these 17-year-old boys, and many of them had never, like, slept outdoors, didn't know how to do a, how to start a campfire. They'd never shot a gun. And I was like, well, you got to know how to shoot a gun. And, you know, I get the moms like, we don't let Timmy shoot a gun. Like, oh, Lord, Mama, come on. You got to just relax. We all have to shoot guns to protect your little Timmy, so let me have him. All right, and so it's all right. We're going to shoot at people, shoot at clay pigeons and stuff. And so... We'd take them out there, and it was great. It was one of my favorite trips we'd ever do, take a bunch of young high school guys, and we'd go camping, and, and we would um, you know, teach them how to build fires and let them buy a knife. Some of them did very first knife with me. It was ridiculous, and shoot guns and all this thing. And so one of the first things we'd do, we'd get there, um, and we'd really pick on each other, demoralize each other in the name of Jesus. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful trip. So we'd get there, and we'd build a little campfire, and this kid named Ryan Kinder, who I think he's like a Marine now or something, he runs over to the woods, and he gets this big pine limb that had a bunch of pine needles on it, and he runs up to the campfire. We'd been there one minute, and he jams it into the fire, and then he holds it up over the campfire, and he just starts waving it back and forth, and this big ball of flame is just, and all the dudes there was like, this is awesome. Me included. And I know, girls, sometimes you're like, why do you have to? I don't know. We just like to burn stuff down, okay? And so there he is, just raw. And we're going, Kinder, Kinder. It's awesome. And then Kinder gets all hyped up with this big ball of pine tree fire. And he just starts running through my uncle's hay field. And we go from Kinder to no. And we're running around with our little canteens trying to squirt out all these little fires. Because everywhere he goes, there's fire. Now, is fire bad? Was it the fire's fault? No. In fact, fire kind of made the camping experience. It, it kept us warm in the evening. We cooked all of our food over it. And when there's nothing to do, everybody just stares at the campfire. <laughs> but when it got outside of the environment of the fire pit, it was very, very destructive. It could have burnt down my, my Uncle Philip's whole house. That's what sex is like. In, in marriage between one man and one woman... It is, I mean, it'll warm the house. It's beautiful. It's fun. It's awesome. Better than I can describe. You get it outside of that context. And not only can it burn you down individually and your relationships, but actually our entire society. And so what what Paul's going to do here then is he says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What he's trying to do is he's trying to reframe the people in Corinth's understanding to give them God's perspective so that they'll change their practice. And so what he's doing here is he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And he's saying, hey, listen, there is a point to sex. And the point to sex is not just your pleasure. That's actually a byproduct of great sex, It's pleasure. The point of sex is intimacy. And if you divorce sex and intimacy, I'm telling you, you're going to chase away the very point of sex. And so he takes him back, back to Genesis 2, to when it was created and what it was created for. And he quotes he says the two will become one flesh. The greater context of this, Genesis two twenty four, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Listen, 25-year-old young man, listen to the Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That means they get married, and they shall become one flesh. They have sex. See the order there? that The man gets his house in order, and then he holds fast to his wife. He makes a covenant, and he marries her till death do us part. And then they become one flesh. In God's economy, one plus one is one. And then you get verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That has a little bit to do with the fact that they did not have clothes on, but it really is about intimacy. That's what you want. That's the goal. That you and your wife can stand there with nothing to hide, that you were fully offering yourself to her and she is fully offering your, herself to you and there is vulnerability and there is transparency and the rest and you might have to fake it for the rest of the world and you probably should but for her at least in that context you can fully know and fully be known as much as it's humanly possible and order matters they got married first and then in, in that covenant they could give each other to one another why because they knew till death do us part Now our culture has flipped those two. That you get naked before one another first and you are full of shame. Order matters. What God intends for you is for you to be naked together and feel no shame. And so what he's trying to do is say, listen, you're missing the whole point of what sex and sexuality are all about. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18, the preeminent text on sexual immorality. And so Paul says, because of all of that, because of the gospel, because of what it will do to the intimacy in your marriage, because what it will do to the vulnerability between you and your future spouse, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. That means run away from sexual immorality. Let me tell you how big a deal this is. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, if you come face to face with the devil, here's what you do. You stand firm against the devil in his evil schemes. All right? You put on the full armor of God, you quote Bible verses to him, and you stand firm in your faith against the devil himself because greater is he who is in you than the devil that you're face to face with. That means, for the sake of argument, if you were to go out to your car today at the end of the service and the devil of hell was standing at your car, and let's just say he looked like the Saturday Night Live devil, right? He had the horns and the pitchfork and Will Ferrell or whatever era of Saturday Night Live you grew up in. That was my era. And he was like, I'll get you. Then you should stand firm, and you should, you should call down the, the angel armies and quote scripture and wear him out. But if you were to walk out from, to your car and there was something sexually tempting, then the Bible would say, run, Forrest, Run! You don't have what it takes to stand there. It's going to take you out. Do you see how big a deal this is? Flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Our problem is, is we don't typically flee. We try to flirt. Every single one of us that have sinned sexually, it's because we had an opportunity to flee, and instead of fleeing, we flirted. Every single one of us. At some point, that we had the opportunity to run away, And instead of saying, when's the time, we said, where's the line? When you start asking, where's the line, the end is near. Because when you ask, where's the line, your next logical question is, how close can I get to the line without sinning? If you're asking that question, then the next question is, how far over the line can I go and still manage the consequences? And when you ask that question, you say, how did I get here? How did I get here? Listen, I know there's a lot of you sleeping together. And some of you that say you love Jesus, and I, I, I'm not saying you don't love Jesus. You're just not loving Jesus while you're sleeping with that person that's not your spouse. And, and what happened I mean, you're here, you worship with your hands up, you serve, and, and you're dating a girl, and she's, on the, she's in gin right now serving. And instead of fleeing sexual immorality, you started flirting with sexual immorality. And then you began to cross lines and cross lines and cross lines, and it's hard to go in reverse. And so the Bible says flee sexual immorality. Run away from it. Why? Because it's like a fire, and if it gets outside of its fireplace, I'm telling you it could burn your whole world down. Then he goes on to say this. He says, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That sexual sin is in a category unto itself. Sometimes you've heard people say all sin is equal. That's not true. All sin is equal separates us from God, so that's true. All sin is forgivable except not receiving Christ before you die. That's true. But the Bible says that there are, there's a different category for sexual sin, that all other, all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually, it like dings up your soul. It's like a different kind of sin. There's different consequences. There's different results. I mean, ask anybody that has that kind of sexual past, and I'm telling you, it just haunts them. At the end of services, you know, when I pray over people, if I ever have somebody come down to me and say, and say, um, hey, listen, God can never forgive me, it's always, there's always something sexual going on. And sometimes it's even people that have been sinned against. Some of you, it wasn't even you or your sin. that Somebody sins against you and you still feel dirty. That you were molested or raped or abused. You know how, see, we all believe that sexual sin is in a category unto itself. You know how I know this? Because no married couples ever joke about their sexual sin in the past. Have you ever been in a disciple group? And the husband say, hey, y'all, listen to this. My wife has this great story. Hey, babe, tell them about how you used to sleep around in college, y'all. This is hilarious. Go ahead. Yeah, the Daytona week. That was great. Go ahead. Spring break, 88. Go, baby. No. It's embarrassing. It's haunting. Nobody ever does that. Listen. Of all my sin, of all my sin, my sexual sin is just in a different category. It is. And and if I could change one thing about my life, one thing about my life, is I would go back to every single moment where I chose to flirt instead of flee, and if I could get the flux capacitor and get back there, I would change every single decision. Because when I met Gretchen, I was not a virgin, and it haunts me. It haunts me. When I say I'm the greatest sinner in the room, that's primarily what I'm thinking of. That I took advantage of people. I manipulated people to get what I wanted when I wanted it. I flirted instead of fleed. And it it continues to haunt me that I would go back if I could change anything. And here's the crazy thing, y'all. I did all kind of bad stuff. I mean bad, bad. When I say I was really good at being bad, I was really good at being bad. I stole two cars, got caught for one. I, I beat up a lot of people. I just enjoyed fighting. I would take a couple before I'd fight back good because I just kind of liked it. It's not good. I manipulated people. I lied. I cheated on tests. I used to steal stuff, mostly from Walmart. So it's kind of crazy that I'm at one all the time now. All right. And I know I'm the preacher of a big church. I'm not supposed to be this honest, but I don't give a crap about, about trying to paint some kind of picture that you guys will think I'm perfect. I'm telling you, I have been forgiven of so much, so much, so much. It's why when we worship, I go for it because I just, when I see me in light of the cross, I go, oh my God, how amazing is that grace? And that stuff, stealing stuff and car, all that stuff, it bothers me about this much. But sexual immorality, is different. Now, it doesn't mean that, that I'm just broken goods, that there's power in the blood of the cross, that there's power and there's forgiveness and there's restoration, and by his stripes, we are healed. But I'm telling you, those ghosts, those ghosts crept into the first few years of our marriage, and we needed the saving and redeeming power of Jesus and the healing of the Holy Spirit to get through it. So everybody that sins sexually, sins against their own body. And now Paul's going to finish it up by reframing it with the gospel. This is the most important part. Verse 19. He says, or do you not know, and they didn't know, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Do you realize that you are the temple? If you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, this is a big deal. In the Old Testament, there was a real temple. And when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, there was this little room called the Holy of Holies, that separated the presence of God from the people of God. And there was this, there was this curtain that separated us. And that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwelled every person that have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, then God's new address on earth is you, that your body has temple status. That is a big stinking deal. Do you not know that God lives in you? So what you're doing with your body, in essence, you're doing with a member of Christ. And so he says, don't you know that your body is a temple? And again, they didn't know that. And then here's, this is the clincher. This is the gospel. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So why should you not have sex outside of marriage? Because Christ died for you on the cross. That's why. Is it so that your marriage one day will be great? No. Did you know that your your life story is a bigger deal than your love story? That you're going to make a covenant to a husband or wife till death do us part, but then you're going to keep going. And God wants to do more in you than you even know. And so because Christ died on the cross, here's what he's saying. You are so valuable you are so valuable, you were so valuable, therefore you should be treated as valuable. You know how valuable you are? Some of the reason you, some, some of you give yourself away because you didn't know how valuable you are. And in God's economy, here's how valuable you are. The way you determine something's value is what is someone willing to pay for it? Remember, we all learned this the hard way in 2009 when you tried to sell your house and you were like, well, it's not worth, no. It's only worth what somebody will pay for it. Well, guess what God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth was willing to pay for you with? The blood of his only begotten son. Now, if you just try to do better, I don't think you can do it, but if you understand the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself and begin to understand that you are not your own, that you are not your own, you were bought at a price that Christ paid for you. Therefore, glorify God with your body. That's the point. That's the point. The point is not God is good and you're bad, so try harder. The point is this. Flee sexual immorality because you were not your own. You were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. And that's why sex is for married people. Again, will it help your marriage? Yes and amen, but that's actually a byproduct of the gospel. It's a byproduct of the gospel. So let me ask you this, church. Just use your imagination. If you were God if you were God and you loved us infinitely more than even you love the people closest to you in your world, what would you say to us about sex? Be careful? Wear a condom? If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with? No. You know what you would say? Flee! Run away! You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, the Puritan preachers used to talk about two things. They would talk about vivification and mortification. Vivification means that you do the things in your world that help stir your affections for Jesus. Again, back to the lawn analogy. The more you feed the grass, the more it chokes out the weeds. But you've also got to take time for mortification. Um, Jonathan Edwards said, if you're not killing sin, then it is killing you. And so you've got to do the things that stir your affections for Jesus so that you know how to honor him with your body. And you better take out the things that are causing you to stumble and causing you to fall. And so, I, I look, I'm all for gospel-centered guardrails in your life. And so if you're single, if you're dating, here I would encourage you to put these guardrails in your life. And it's an acronym because of my Southern Baptist roots. All right, I'm sorry, I apologize, but... This is how I think sometimes. So this would be it. Here's how I would flee. Like, what does that look like? Where's the line? Here's what I would say to you. The F is this, 40 days of no touching. If you're dating, you're not married, 40 days of no touching, okay? And if you've been dating and touching, then I would say, hit the reset button. And for the next 40 days, no touching. And you're like, what does that mean, no touching? How about this? You can touch them the way you would touch me. And I hope you think about that on your next date, okay? (laughs) i just ruin that for you. So, would we hug? Sort of. I mean, that real A-frame hug, you know, you don't hug with your thighs, all right? Like, just for a minute, and then you do that, okay, let go of me. You just tap, tap, tap. Or if you're a dude, you do that hug where you, like, grasp fists, and you make sure your chest don't touch, and then you just pound it out, like, hey, you know. Don't hug her that way. But briefly, you might do a little brief little hug like that. Would we hold hands? Sure, until the prayer was over. And then we'd go, amen. We'd squeeze and be done. 40 days. Ladies, let me tell you what's going to happen. Uh, that'll reveal his character. It just will. Because if he can't wait 40 days to hold your hand, he does not have what it takes to be a husband. Because he's going to need to dress himself as a servant and wash your feet the rest of his days. It's going to be about being a servant, not about being a taker. So 40 days, no touching. The L is this, leave on the lights and the clothes. Leave on the lights and the clothes. Environment matters. Environment matters. Environment matters. There is no reason that you need to be on a couch, under a blanket, if it's that cold, turn the heat up in your house, watching some romantic comedy movie, okay? Leave the lights on and the clothes on. Environment matters. And in fact, um, the greater the commitment, the harder this is going to be. When I was, when when Gretchen and I got engaged, engagement can turn you into a terrible Bible scholar. You'll start trying to find some verses out of context and be like, well, we're we're married in God's eyes. No, you are not. You're either married or you're not married. And so I just told her, I can't go in your apartment anymore. And Gretchen's all holy. She's like, why not? And I was like, listen, it's like shopping with no money. I'm either going to take something that's not mine or leave frustrated. That's called lose-lose, okay? I'll be in the car. So environment matters. Leave on the lights, leave on the clothes. The first E is this. You can touch everything but what the bathing, bathing suit covers. Is that clear enough? And I'm talking like old school 1920s bathing suit, okay? So go Southern Baptist on me. Head, shoulders, knees, toes, knees, toes. Stay there, you're good. Touch all the shoulders you want. That's it. And then the last E, this is my favorite one because of your reaction. Ready? Stay erect. Need me to explain? Okay. (laughs) Don't lay down together. Because I'm telling you, when you get married, when you lay down, do work, brother. But when you are dating, stay erect. Everybody should be standing up. You're not super spiritual if you can lay around on the couch with each other spooning all day and not do stuff. You're just dumb. You're just dumb. And so flee sexual immorality. Do the kind of things that are God-honoring. <clears throat> um, and then also, for those of you, this is not my idea. I stole it from one of the best communicators in the country out of Atlanta, Georgia. It's his idea. I just stole it because it's awesome. If... if if you're, if you're a single person and dating has always equaled sex, like those two are just totally intertwined, no matter who you date, whether you date a Christian or a non-Christian or whatever, if you date, it just always equals sex. Then here's what you should do in order to flee sexual immorality. You should take a year off of dating, a whole year. You should get out your iPhone, and after last week, everybody has an iPhone now or a smartphone, and you go to your calendar, and one year from today, you just type in resume dating. And here's why. Just like an athlete injures himself and they don't let him play in the game for a while so that he can heal up, you have some emotional, relational, and soul healing that needs to be done. You've got some neuro pathways that have been set in a direction that you need to reset and you need to take a year off. And let me assure you what's going to happen, ladies, as soon as you do that, like at the end of this series, if you say, okay, that's what I'm going to do, one year off starting today, six weeks from now. You're going to meet this man, and he's a combination of William Wallace, Tim Tebow, and Jesus who's going to swoop into your life. <laughs> and then you're going to have an opportunity to decide who is your Lord. Are you going to trust God, or do you feel like you have to take control again? You need to take a year off to heal at the soul level. And then lastly, I know a bunch of you are sleeping together. I know a bunch of you are living together and sleeping together, and you're not married. And here's what I would tell you. It's a gospel problem. It's a gospel problem. I am not here to beat you up. I am here to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. And here's what I want you to know. In John chapter 8, this woman gets caught in adultery and they bring her before Jesus. And she's afraid, and she is condemned. And the law of Moses says that if a woman is caught in adultery, then they stone her. And these self-righteous people are like, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? We caught her in sexual immorality, and we've got rocks here, and we're going to throw them at her until she dies. And, and you think you feel condemned. This lady's thinking, this is how this is going out. This is how I'm going to die. These men are going to throw rocks at me until I am dead. And she kneels down, and she's just weeping on the ground. And Jesus looks at those self-righteous men and he says, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. And I think it was a threat because Jesus was the only one there who had, not cast, who had not sinned. And so essentially they knew, oh, you want to start judging people? We can start judging people. And they all disappear. And then Jesus leans down to this lady who had sinned, who had slapped the face of Jesus by giving herself away, even though he was gonna purchase her on the cross. She didn't get it. And he leans down to her, and he says this. He says, woman, look around. Who has condemned you? And she looks around, and there's nobody left but Jesus. And he, she says, no one, sir. And then he's, here's what he says. Listen, then neither do I condemn you. For those of you that are walking in sexual immorality, you're looking at pornography, or you're having an affair, or you're in a homosexual relationship, or you're sleeping with your girlfriend, or you got a little something on the side, or whatever it is. You know what Jesus says to you? Because he's full of grace. He says, I do not condemn you. But it doesn't stop there. Because he's full of grace, but he's also full of truth. And then he says these words to her. Now leave your life of sin. He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. And that is the gospel. There is no sin that you have committed that is bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. But our sin is such a big deal that Jesus Christ had to die for it. So for all of us who have sinned sexually, Jesus does not condemn us. Now surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Christ will send the Holy Spirit to live in us. And by the blood of Jesus, the love of a Heavenly Father... The power of the Holy Spirit standing on the authority of the Word of God that we can leave our life of sin. But it starts with the gospel. Would you please bow your head right where you are? If you were here this morning and you were ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, not by anything that you've done, but by what He did on the cross. Regardless of your sin, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you think about yourself, what God thinks about you is that he loves you right now. He loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to purchase you out of the muck and the mire. And that by his blood, he would wash you clean and that you would be holy. That one day in heaven, that you would wear white rightfully because of his righteousness. If you're ready to receive that forgiveness... To be forgiven of your sin and surrender your life to Jesus. Raise your hand where you are and say, Father, here I am. I surrender to you. And then you pray because you're talking to your dad now. And you just admit your sin. You believe on Christ and you confess him as Lord. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I pray, Lord, I know that there are a lot of folks that are in this room right now and they feel condemned. Lord, I pray that you would ingrain in our heart Romans 8.1. That therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you did not come to condemn, but to save. And God, I pray that every man, woman, and student in this place would surrender, would bow our knee to you. We would call you Lord, not our desires, not our orientations. None of that, God, that you would be the Lord of our life. And So God, I pray that you would wash us. You would sanctify us. You would justify us. And that you would set us free to live lives worthy of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we respond? Listen, this is the most important part of the service, okay? This is when the real life change happens. One of the ways we respond is we're gonna sing. One of the ways we respond, if you're a regular, is you bring your tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around here. And one of the ways we respond is we come to the feet of Jesus, just like that woman caught in adultery. Listen, I know, on the sex sermon, nobody wants to come to the altar. I understand. The fake you is doing just fine. If you want to keep hiding it, just know, gross things grow in the dark. You walk down to that altar, you bend your knee, and you watch God begin to illuminate some parts of your life and watch the darkness flee away. Let us respond.